went, no, listening to British Birds, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have a very special guest joining me for a chat. She became a Queen's Counsel in 1998 and sat as a full-time judge from 2007 to 2022. She moved to the Old Bailey in 2012 was the only woman among 16 judges and only the third woman ever to hold a permanent position there. Her first published book, Unlawful Killings, was released on June 9th and provides a detailed insight into how high court cases unfold and illustrates what it's like to be a murder trial judge. Please welcome to the show, Her Honour, Wendy Joseph QC. Welcome, Wendy. I must say, I really love your title. Am I okay calling you Wendy, or do I have to call you Her Honour? You're fine calling me Wendy. I've left her honour behind now. Have you? What's it like when you first get that sort of title? Does it feel like you've got some sort of real power over the normal person? It feels quite frightening. Uh, When I first became a judge, a circuit judge, I was simply addressed as your honour. And that that was quite a shock when it happened. When I moved to the old Bailey... They stopped calling me Your Honour and started calling me My Lady and Your Ladyship. And that was a serious shock. I was looking around to see who they were talking to. (laughs) Is that just something that happens overnight then? Or do they say, right, from now on, formally, we have to call you this? Circuit judges are usually Your Honour. High court judges are usually My Lord or My Lady. Old Bailey judges are a sort of hybrid between the two. Right. And so we're a little bit higher up than ordinary circuit judges. We're senior circuit judges, but we deal exclusively with very serious crime. Right. Okay. What I want to ask you before we get into your background is just to break the ice a little bit. We've kind of done that already now with the title discussion. But if you had the power to change one law, which law would you change and for what reason? Oh, that, that's a difficult question. I think if I could change one law, it wouldn't be a substantive law. It would be the law that deals with sentencing people. And in particular, the law that deals with sentencing people convicted of murder because the rules for dealing with that are so stringent that it's sometimes very difficult to do justice. Okay, so does it kind of go in increments of five? Am I right in thinking that, as far as the the amount of years someone would get sentenced? So for murder, there's only one sentence, and that's a sentence of life imprisonment. We give it different names depending on how old the defendant is. If he's under 18, he or she, under 18 or under 21, it may have a different name, but it means the same thing. It means you go to prison and there is no date for release. 
Okay. But in each case of murder, the judge then has to say what the minimum sentence, minimum number of years the defendant must serve before he or she can even apply for parole. They do go up in increments, not quite a five, but the starting point for someone uh, who is an adult convicted of murder is usually 15 years, unless a weapon is taken to the scene. If a knife or other weapon is taken to the scene and then used for the purpose of the murder, the starting point is 25 years, so that's an increment of 10. And if a gun is used, or in a variety of other circumstances, for example, if there's a sexual motive, or if two people are killed, in variety of circumstances, the starting point can be 30 years. And that doesn't mean serving half of it, as it would with ordinary sentences. It means serving every single day before you can apply for parole. How restrictive is the guideline? Is it quite easy to work with or is there too many variables that make it actually quite difficult to work from? So there isn't a strict guideline for murder like there is in the sentencing guidelines for many other offences. But there are clear rules laid down in what is called um, Schedule 21, which attaches to the statute that deals with these things. And they are quite restrictive. There is no rule that a judge must impose a particular sentence, but you have to pay attention to those guidelines and to what is said in that schedule. And if you go outside the prescribed parameters, you have to explain why. And if you don't, and even if you do, and they don't agree with you, the Court of Appeal will be there to put you right. How many cases have you come across? Because in this country, we know that, well, maybe I'm being a bit naive here, but gun crime, as far as comparison to somewhere like America, I don't think I've ever seen a gun, thankfully, apart from on a police officer, for example, maybe at the airport. Is that quite common in murder trials that a gun would be used? Or is it more knives in this country? Yeah, it's far more knives than than guns. Thank heavens it's far more knives than guns. You tend to come across guns in more highly organised crime, um, more highly gang-organised crime sometimes, particularly where drugs are concerned. But I don't want to belittle in any sense at all the gravity of any killing. But most of the murders that we see at the Bailey, certainly most of the murders that involve youngsters, involve weapons with blades. And of course, knives um, are so easy for anyone to pick up. There's no household that hasn't got a knife in it. This is very true. I mean, they've tried to put restrictions on purchasing knives for example with being 18 the challenge 25 initiative and stuff but like you say every household's got a knife yeah what do you think can happen in regards to knife crime because it is kind of escalating from what we see on the news it's almost like you can't go anywhere without fear of that especially in in like the capital of london yeah it's a um Stuart. it's a huge problem and if we were going to tackle one problem 
that's probably the one that we ought to tackle. Why kids carry knives and what we can do to stop them carrying knives. The difficulty is it isn't a, it isn't a problem that you can solve in a courtroom. By the time a case gets in the courtroom, by the time a case gets in front of someone like me, it's way too late to put it right, certainly for the people involved. By then, you've got one dead child on a mortuary slab and another one about to go to prison for longer than he's ever lived. And you've got two grieving families. And if you think a judge can put that right, well, a judge can't. Uh, so you've got to start looking somewhere well before the actual crime if we're going to stop the amount of knife crime that we've got. Where do you think that should start? I think we need to start by recognising there isn't a simple solution. If there was one simple solution, we'd have found it a long time ago and you and I wouldn't be having this discussion. There are a multiplicity of reasons as to why people carry knives. First of all, there are whole groups of people who carry knives because they are out to commit other crimes and the knives are to be used in the course of the crimes. So if you're walking around carrying a lot of drugs, you are walking around carrying something which has a large value, monetary value to those who want to sell them on, but a different sort of value to a drug addict who may be desperate to get hold of them. You may be carrying a knife in self-protection in the most unjustifiable of circumstances, but that might be the rationale behind it. On the other end of the scale, you might be a school kid in fear of bullies in the school around you and they carry knives and you're frightened not to be carrying one too. Then there's another problem with the ease of getting hold of knives and a whole separate problem which has to do with the availability of fashionable knives. So at the moment... We are seeing a lot of knifings which are, well, you can kill someone with a, a vegetable knife. You can kill someone very efficiently with a vegetable knife, but it's not what the kids are carrying. They're carrying machetes. They're carrying the big silver knives with the punched out holes and designs in them. And there's no doubt at all that those weapons are designed to kill. I mean, they are designed for hunting. That's what their original design was for. All those punched out holes and shapes designed to reduce suction so that when the knife is inside the body, no doubt designed for the animal body, it will come out without too much difficulty. So we've got kids carrying weapons designed for killing, albeit not maybe for killing people, but they're carrying them as fashion accessories. How can they do that in this country? Well, here's another problem. Things are so available on the internet. So there's, um, to come back to your question, I'm sorry to have gone so far away from it. Sorry. The reality is there are a multiplicity of strands of problems 
and they all need to be tackled. It's no good having a go at one of them or a go at another one of them. You really have to have a sort of multi-handed approach to try and work out what's going wrong and try and stop it. You mentioned there that they sort of carry them as a fashion accessory, which I was going to ask you about that, and I, I agree that is the case in a lot of the situations. Do you think the kids realise what they're actually designed for? Like you mentioned the the ease of withdrawal from something like an animal, whether it's a book or whether it's whatever you kill, or if you're a hunter. Do you think they know how deadly these are or they're a bit naive in that sense? I think if they're buying them off the internet, they know perfectly well what they're for because of the way that they're advertised. But I do agree. I think there's a problem with kids not recognising the finality of stabbing someone. And it's extraordinary because so many of them will have friends who've been stabbed or even will have been stabbed themselves. It's hard really to understand, um, you know, why a 12 or 14 or 16-year-old doesn't get that if you stick a knife into someone, you are likely to actually kill them. I know there's a lot of talk that children just don't get their heads around the finality of death because of playing video games and the way in which you kill, you kill, you kill, but up pops the person who's been killed or you get killed and up you pop again in the game. I don't know whether that really is a problem, but I think what is a problem is that our whole culture has been normalising violence and has been doing it for some time now. So, you know, we, we, we watch, we enjoy. Why shouldn't we watch and enjoy something as innocuous as a James Bond film? But it involves killing. And the level of violence on our streets really does suggest that for a lot of youngsters these days, violence has become normalised in a way that's quite worrying. And if we're going to put that right you've probably got to start way back. You've probably got to start with little kids in the primary schools. You've probably got to start with five-year-olds. It's a shame, isn't it, that you'd have to potentially start to tell kids of such an age not to do something, which realistically should be common sense, shouldn't yeah. it? Or at least show them show them why they shouldn't, show them the damage that can be done. And I don't just means show them that if you put a knife through the skin, it goes through the fat, the muscle between the ribs, deeper in and slips into the heart. And that's it. I don't just mean that they would need to understand the finality of that, but the harm it does to everyone, to um, a mum who's lost their child to the mum of the stabber who's going to see their child go to prison for however many decades, to the friends and family around the whole circumstance, to what you were saying before, Stuart, to how it makes people, ordinary decent people, frightened, makes the kids frightened to go out on the streets. So there must be ways of doing it but it's a big task. What role do you think 
social media plays with regards to crime because you get back in say the i think it was the 80s with the video nasties and they would try to ban horror films and stuff and everyone said video games horror movies they're having an effect on people i think with regards to film and tv we might be a little bit desensitized now so i don't necessarily think that has as much of an effect as it perhaps did but when you've got things like snapchat and instagram and FaceTime on on your phones, and you get people going to crimes, committing crimes, and and sort of live streaming it to get likes, to get followers and stuff. To me, that's quite a big role that it's playing. It's playing an increasingly important role. I only see it in the court because it turns up as part of the... I used to see it in the court uh, because it turns up as part of the evidence. So police may have picked up someone posting stuff which shows that they were celebrating the death and they were doing it, you know, within three and a half minutes of the death, suggesting they must have been very close to it at the time. So I I see it in that sense. And I've also seen it increasingly as a weapon in the commission of crime, not just a motivation in the way you've been describing, but as part of the commission. So there'll be a call sent out on social media by a group to the rest of the group, come to wherever it is, bring whatever needs to be brought. Someone will bring the weapons, someone will bring a getaway car, um, and arrangements uh, are increasingly made in that way. Is that organised crime on a low level? Yeah, it is. It's the power of a smartphone is quite extraordinary in terms of the commission of crime, as well as celebrating crimes afterwards. In terms of the commission of crimes, if I can deviate just slightly, in drugs dealing, vast percentages of the actual final sales of drugs on-the-street drugs, are done by advertising the drugs by phone, by sending out, by the dealer at the end of the line, sending out 30, 40, 50 messages, all sent out at the identical time to people who are likely purchasers of the drug, saying, this is what I've got, this is where I am, bring your money, come and get it. What's the risk from their perspective? Because that's quite a ballsy move to just send that out into the ether without any repercussions. Well, the repercussions that I see, of course, is when it, when they've been caught. And I see it because it turns up as part of the evidence. But I'm guessing that if it didn't pay off overall, they wouldn't be doing it. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know, that there are an awful lot of drugs dealers out there successfully getting away with it. How hard do you think it is to keep on top of the drug issue here? Because it seems like one of those things where as soon as you shut down one key distributor, there's another one ready in his place, and they always seem two or three steps ahead. What do you think in that respect is the best way to... Do you think it can be controlled? Well, it depends what drug you're talking about. But if we were to concentrate on class A drugs, if we were to concentrate on the the stuff that kills, if we were to look at crack, 
and heroin, for example, it gets into this country and it shouldn't. It's brought in by organised crime in an organised way. So I've seen vast quantities that have originated in South America entering the country from Greece, for example. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right. So it's taken a trip, it's come around. That that doesn't happen accidentally, or that doesn't happen because someone suddenly thinks, oh, that's a good idea. That is seriously organised crime. Mm. Once you've got that large quantity of drug, your chances of stopping it being distributed are pretty low. Once it's here and there is serious money to be made all the way down the line because it drifts down the line to in smaller and smaller amounts right down to street level. Everybody's making money out of it all the way down the line. If you remove someone from that chain, it'll be just as you said, someone else will be there to pick it up. So the first thing we should be doing is seriously thinking about stopping that those drugs getting into the country. Is that the most difficult part of that chain, do you think, actually getting it on our shores? Well, an awful lot of it comes in and the National Crime Agency and other other parts of the enforcement services do an enormous amount of work to try and stop it coming in. But it's quite clear that it does get in. And you know, Stuart, we're an island. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a shore all the way around the whole island. Whatever we do about planes and what have you, it's a big problem. certainly is. It sort of works against us, doesn't it, really? Because you could come in from anywhere. You can't block every single beach, every single coastline, whilst man in the air, whilst man in the underground and everything. Yeah. The investigative agencies are quite good at tracking things back, quite good at being able to work back if they catch someone with a large amount of drugs driving into London um, from the M1, quite good at using the vast resources that we all know we've now got in terms of um, following that vehicle with the various cameras that are en route and automatic number plate recognition and so forth, tracing that back getting it to the outskirts of a a town maybe, picking up local CCTV, working backwards to try and find where the drugs at least have been stored, where they've originated from. But it's a huge job. And they've got, as you've been saying, there's plenty of other huge jobs to be tackling like like knives. It's which one you pick, I suppose, because you can't prioritize one over the other but you also can't combat everything at once which is incredibly frustrating 
When did you know that you wanted to become a judge? Was that always your ambition as a kid? No, no, not at all. Not, not even to be a lawyer. I didn't decide that I wanted to be a judge until I'd been a barrister for a very long time. And there came a time when I'd been working in the criminal courts for ooh, nearly 30 years, and I'd both been prosecuting and defending. I was in Silk at QC. I felt I'd done most of the things I wanted to do there. And I also found it increasingly difficult to be always fighting a corner, which is what being a barrister is about. You're instructed for one side or the other, and you are your job is to present your case in the best possible way. And in that sense, you are always fighting a corner. And there just came a time when I thought, you know what? I would be much happier sitting up on the bench, just making sure everything is done fairly. All the parties get the same fair chance, the same fair crack of the whip. And so I applied to be a judge. I was very lucky to be appointed back in 2007. And my guess that I would be happier doing that than I had been in the last few years at the bar was absolutely right. I found I really did like sitting as a judge. Is that like being more of a, like a referee or a, the parent to two naughty children fighting? I have to tell you, sometimes it does feel like running a crash. <laughs> How does one actually become a barrister, though, in the first instance? If, if I wanted to become a barrister, let's say I'm, I'm 10 years younger than I am now, I just want, want to start uni, what path would I need to take to become a barrister if my goal was to eventually become a judge? Um, good question. It's something I discuss with students quite a lot, because as well as being an ordinary judge, I was also what is called a diversity and community relations judge. And I spent a lot of time with youngsters who might have wanted to come into the law, might have wanted one day to end up on the bench. And so the answer is, it's not as long and as difficult as being a vet or a doctor, or a dentist, but it is quite a long process. You will need a law degree. doesn't have to be your first degree, but you need a law degree. And then you need to take a vocational course, which is at least another year, which will then allow you to be called to the bar. You get called to the bar by one of the four inns of court, Fancy names, but you may have heard of them, Middle Temple, Inner Temple, Lincoln's Inn, and Gray's Inn. And one of those four inns of court calls you to the bar. Once you're called to the bar, you are, as they say when they call you, published barrister. You are a barrister. If you want to sit in a criminal court, so if you want to practice in a criminal court, you then need to do what is called pupillage, which is following an experienced barrister around and learning from that experienced barrister 
in courtrooms, in chambers, in conferences, just living the life of a barrister and learning how it works. And once you've completed that, and that is usually a year, usually divided into two lots of six months, you've then got the right to fly free. In fact, you can go into court under your own steam after you've done six months of pupillage. And so there'll be, in most courts, a mixture of people appearing, very young and inexperienced barristers and much older, greyer wigs. What's the deal with the wigs? The horse hair. What do they represent? Horse hair. Horse hair, that's what it is. It's horse (laughs) hair, yeah. Some kind old Dobbin giving up the horse uh, so that we can all have horse hair wigs. What's the deal? Well, it applies to the wigs, as, to the gowns as well, doesn't it? And the bands that we wear around our necks, the whole gubbins, the whole paraphernalia that we wear. The first thing to say is in a lot of courts, it isn't worn at all anymore. In civil cases, many, many civil courts don't wear robes. Certainly where children are involved, even in the criminal courts, we tend not to wear robes or not at least to wear wigs so as not to make the whole thing too alien for a a very young child. And, you know, sometimes we'll have a child witness who's four years old, six years old. So one's got to be a little bit cautious there. But the place, apart from the high courts, The place where we do retain the wig and the gown, the little jacket and the bands that we wear, are in the criminal courts, the crown courts, where we have jury trials. And there are big questions as to whether we should or we shouldn't. I'm actually quite in favour of having them. Because it isn't only the judge who wears them. It's the barristers as well. And what it does is it takes away the individuality. So when I'm wearing my wig and gown and I'm sitting on the bench, I'm not Wendy. I'm the judge. I'm not even Judge Wendy. I'm not even her honour, Judge Joseph. I'm the judge. And so it gives you a degree of authority because you are there performing the role. And it really emphasizes that. It really does if you're wearing that. So I may have, heaven forfend, I should get too many of these, but I might have a stroppy barrister in front of me who um, is older than me, more experienced than me. I used regularly to get barristers who were an awful lot bigger than me. I'm five foot two and a half, and you know there may be someone who's six foot two and a half, much more imposing physically than I am. But wearing the garb, wearing the outfit that says, this is the judge, clothes you in authority, literally clothes you in authority. And When you're a barrister, it's even more true. It may be your job 
as quite a slightly built woman, for example, to be cross-examining someone the exact opposite, to be cross-examining a serious criminal of substantial build who is quite intimidating. So to be given that permission to stand there because you've got the authority of being a barrister, you've got the right to be there, you've got the right to be asking these questions. It can be very important indeed. But I do agree there are times when it can be inappropriate, particularly if you've got young children in the courtroom. Absolutely. So you mentioned there that when you're in the wig, you're in the robe, and you're sort of playing that character of the judge, does that help almost disassociate yourself from being Wendy the person when it comes to cases that may ordinarily affect you, if it's an especially touching case, if it involves children, does dressing and, and sort of acting as that judge help you put that to the back of your mind? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't actually thought of that, but I think you're right. I mean, I think upon reflection, that must be right, because when you're in your chambers in the morning and you put on the robes and you put on the wig, you are putting on the persona. And when you take them off in the evening, it helps you leave behind what you've been listening to during the day. And you have to be able to do that because otherwise, well, otherwise you'd go mad, I think. Yeah, I think it must be like a literal weight lifted probably when you sort of derobe, I suppose, for better use of a term, once court's finished. What was the move like from before being an actual old Bailey judge, which is our sort of most famous court, the, the one that deals with all the serious criminal and murder cases. What was it like moving from your previous role into being an old Bailey judge? Well, before that, I'd been a judge at another court in London, at a court called Snaresbrook Crown Court, which is bigger than the Bailey. In fact, it is, I think, it's certainly the biggest single Crown Court in this country. And I think it is the single biggest dedicated upper criminal court in the whole of Europe in terms of the number of courtrooms that it's got. Hmm. And it was incredibly busy there. From the time you walked in to the time you walked out, you did not stop. It wasn't doing just one case. The case you were doing during the day would be bookended with bail applications in the morning and sentences for people who pleaded guilty every time your trial took a break and other things that had to be dealt with at the end of the day. It was less serious crime in the sense that it wasn't murder after murder after murder, but it was incredibly hard work. I think the judges who sit in those courts really don't get enough credit for the fact that there is no stopping from morning till night. Do you think in that sense then, because the big cases that we see as the general public on the news, it's typically the the more serious, the more unusual, it's your high-level murder cases. Do you think judges who work at other courts, but on some of the lesser crimes, I suppose, do you think they get enough credit or do you think they sort of fly a little bit under the radar? I like to give them credit. I don't I think I think they're respected for what they 
They do, but I'm not sure people understand what a difficult job it is. The fact that you're trying, let's take something really low level, supposing it's a shoplifting case. It may not be of any great interest to the general public, but my goodness, it may be important to the people concerned. The person accused may have a job that if he or she is convicted, they're going to lose the job. Their children may not know what's going on and the whole of family life's going to be upended. The victims, the corner shops that are beset by shoplifters, and there's a lot at stake, even in something as simple, and I put that in inverted commas, as a shoplifting. And then those other, those courts like Snaresbrook deal with much more serious stuff as well. You know, they deal with really nasty assaults, grievous bodily harms. They do some murders, some attempted murders. It isn't their daily fare, but there are some that are tried there. It's a hard job being a judge there. But it's a good job. Is it kind of, in a weird way, I might be wrong here, and apologies if I am, but is it kind of every judge's goal to be the judge on a murder trial is that what the ultimate goal is or does it not matter what the scenario is to a judge ah well many judges don't sit in the criminal courts at all so we're talking now about the judges who've chosen to sit in the criminal courts Mm -hmm. and i suppose the reality is that in any job you want to get as high up the ladder as you can in terms of doing the best work And there is no doubt, I think, that the most complicated work that regularly turns up day after day is at the Old Bailey. And so I certainly, once I was a judge, always thought, wow, what a thing to be able to be a judge at the Old Bailey. But I know many judges who are very, very content to be doing good, solid work, day after week after year, in their local courts. Yeah, I I think it is one of them things where judges are respected, like you've said, but I think people don't realise what goes into such quote-unquote minor cases, such as shoplifting. Here's a two-part question. How easy is it to take someone to court? And secondly... What's the, what's in your opinion, the most petty reason you've seen someone take someone to court? Right. In criminal law, almost all prosecutions are brought by the CPS or, for example, British Transport Police or maybe with shopliftings, the big shops will organise the prosecutions. but. Almost all serious crime is prosecuted by the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, or the equivalent. It's very unusual for what you're, I think, getting at, which is private prosecutions, individuals to bring people to a criminal court. Yeah. That, that's why when you hear cases described, it's always described as RV somebody. And that's Regina versus 
the defendant, and Regina is the queen, the queen against the defendant. And that is because people are being prosecuted in the name of the state. Right, okay. So you don't get that many private prosecutions. It's not easy to bring a private prosecution. It can be stopped if there isn't a proper foundation for it. And if there is a proper foundation for it, one really might hope that the CPS would take it over and put their resources into it rather than leaving it to an individual to to try and sort out. So most cases are being prosecuted by organisations whose standards for prosecuting you or me or anybody else can check by putting it into a search engine on the internet and seeing what their standards are. So if you want to see what the criteria are for the CPS to prosecute something, just look on their website and you will find it all set out. Has there ever been a case you've sat on? It might be different if you're doing criminal cases, I suppose, but you or any of the the judge friends that you may have, has there ever been a case where they've thought, what am I doing here? Why is this even a court case? That does happen. I mean, that so does happen. Not because something hasn't gone wrong, but because it is so obvious that whatever happens in the courtroom is only going to make things worse. Classic example of that will be disputes between neighbours, which, generally speaking, won't be dealt with as crimes and won't appear in the criminal courts. But if there is damage to property, if the police are continually called out, then neighbour disputes can end up before the Crown Courts. And Yes, there may have been a crime committed, and yes, the jury will be able to listen to the evidence and work out the right verdict. But at the end of the day, if you've got two people living next door to each other, going through all of that may not be the very best way of resolving the difficulties. And you sort of hope that there might be some other arbitration where these things can be sorted out in a more sensible way. But the law is there to be applied, and I'm pretty sure that it certainly shouldn't be used to prosecute things that don't deserve to come to court. We just have to see see each case as it comes before us. It's a very long time since I've had to sit on a, a case where I've said to myself, this really shouldn't be here. I've been recently been watching a Netflix series called An Anatomy of a Scandal. I don't know if you've heard of that, Wendy, or, or seen it. I've read the book and I've se- I've seen one of the episodes. It's quite good. But again, this is from someone who doesn't know the ins and outs of, of what a court or a trial session would look like. My ultimate question is going to be how accurately do TV shows represent trials? Now, in this particular show, without spoiling it, because I've not finished it yet anyway, but... There's a member of parliament who is taken to court and he's accused of raping someone who was on his staff. On the 
paperwork he gets served, rather than saying Regina versus the guy's name, it says the Queen versus his name. Yeah. Is something like that purely for the sake of the audience? Would it normally wouldn't say the Queen? It would always say Regina or R. These days, it does quite often say the Queen. It okay. does. Yeah. That that that. In fact, I was asked to look at half a dozen extracts from films and television programs recently to say whether they were accurate or not. And Anatomy of a Scandal, in terms of the actual procedure, in terms of what people were wearing and the way questions were asked, was one of the most accurate. Oh, cool. It's got a sort of fundamental query in my mind in it, which is implicit in the, in the story itself. And again, I don't want to be a spoiler here, but in terms of the actual way in which questions are asked, questions are structured, the clothing that is worn in those episodes, certainly the one I saw was pretty accurate. Are there any of those shows that you've been asked to look at where you thought this is completely wrong? <laughs> Poor old John Deed. I know everyone says it, but <laughs> oh my goodness me. Well, it's a very entertaining show. Oh, that's something. <laughs> At least it's entertaining. What about shows like, and this is obviously American law, but what about shows like Judge Judy? Is that all for show or is any of that real? It is structured, isn't it, for the television audience? I don't really know about American law. I suppose our equivalent would be uh, Judge Rinder, I suppose. Yes, I, it? I suppose it would be. But the essence of a courtroom is actually quite serious. And although I'm not someone who used to like my courtroom to be, you know, nobody ever smiled in it, because I think it's quite stressful enough anyway, uh, without making it more intimidating for people. But despite all of that, there is something so serious at the heart of what's going on in any courtroom, really, that it's quite hard to compare it to a television programme which is there primarily as entertainment for an audience. Hmm. I don't know if you've been following the, the recent Johnny Depp defamation case, but that's obviously been completely televised, Yeah. which we don't do in the UK. Do you think that's something that we should bring into the court system? Or are you quite happy that it's not filmed? Well, we are about to get filming from our courtrooms in a very, very limited respect. Really? Oh, yes. We are about... The judges of all... Well, not all of them. The murder judges, at least, have been trained in giving their sentencing remarks whilst being recorded. It won't be done in every case, but in cases which are the cases that you would have described as high profile, but cases that really matter to large sections of the public who have a real interest in them, it will be possible to see a recording of the judge delivering the sentencing remarks. And you know, Stuart, one of the reasons I wrote the book at all was it is so concerning to me that people don't really understand what happens in a courtroom. I mean, they genuinely don't. And it's not their fault. 
it's the fault if they don't understand it's the fault of people like me it's the fault of the lawyers everything in a courtroom should be transparent and that's why i wrote the book but to bring it back to your question about televising the whole of proceedings there are arguments on both sides but in my mind for what it's worth the arguments fall strongly against doing that mm. because you are opening the courtroom up to all sorts of stresses and strains outside those that ought to be there it's hard enough for a, a witness describing what they've seen some horrific scene they've come across to remember all the details to get it all right to stand up to cross examination when it's all happening without pressure of time without extraneous people looking at it in a contained situation where the judge is in control of everything how much more difficult for them to do that when they know that there may be thousands tens of thousands a million people watching what they're doing how much more difficult for the jury to remain completely impartial and unbiased if they're thinking is my hair looking nice i'm on national television <laughs> how much more difficult for a barrister making a judgment a close judgment call as to the tone to use in the asking of a question of a particular witness to do that with all the extra pressures i mean i've said before and i say it again the courtroom is there for the community it's there to serve the community and anybody should be able to go into a courtroom and to see it or even to read reports in newspapers of everything that's happening but that's a very long way from the pressures that are created in something like the Depp Heard trial i mean you can see what a i hope they will forgive me if i say what a circus it can yeah, turn into mhm the other thing as well as if they have tv cameras think of the amount of sketch artists who will be out of work <laughs> <laughs> But no, that's a good way of bringing it on to the book. So it's Unlawful Killings. I was lucky enough to be sent a proof copy of the book. I just thought it was brilliant, honestly. To me, this kind of reads like, because you've got a series of different cases on there, it's almost like a collection of short stories, in a sense, with each chapter focusing on a different case from beginning to end. But the bit I really enjoyed about it was the appendices at the back so there's for anyone that wants to pick this up, it's like a layman's guide almost to the start of a court case to the end and your thought process behind what your decision would have been guides to the the surprising length of a sentencing of your final sort of statement, I suppose. It's got court information on here. It's got laws broken down for the general reader. It's a really great book. You mentioned there why you wanted to do it, but how did it actually come to be? When did you think, you know what, I want to write a book about this? Well, first, can I say I am so glad that you liked it. How did I come to write it? Well, I told you a little while ago that as well as being uh, an ordinary judge in court in the daytime, 
I was also what is called a diversity and community relations judge. Yeah. One of the aspects of that is to try and encourage people from all backgrounds to think about the law and ultimately the bench as a career, because really the bench should reflect the community it serves. But another aspect of that job was to reach out to the wider community, to talk to people who didn't understand what went on in a courtroom and who were interested in it. I used to have many, many groups of children, some of them really very young, coming into the courtroom after court to talk to me about how things worked. I would talk to the parents and families of those whose kids were in trouble with the law, those who had mental illnesses that made them particularly vulnerable to getting into trouble with the law, all sorts of groups of people. And when lockdown came, we only sat, instead of sitting about 15 courts at the Bailey, we were only sitting, only able to sit because of social distancing, something like three or four or five trials at a time. And I was given a period of time off in which I wasn't required to go into the court at all, and in fact told I couldn't because it wasn't my turn and um, social distancing meant the numbers had to be kept very low. So there I was at home, unable to do any of the diversity and community relations work. So I thought, well, the sort of things I would be normally trying to explain to people coming to the court or asking me to go and talk to them, is there no other way of actually communicating it? And I started to write down a little story about school children coming into the building after court one day. It's the introduction. It's how the book actually opens. And when I'd done that, it suddenly struck me, well, I could actually do a little bit more. So I did a bit more and a bit more. And in the end, it turned into an exercise in saying to people, come and sit on the bench with me. Come and see what it's like. This is what it feels like to sit in a courtroom on a murder trial. Make the decisions with me. These are the decisions I have to make. What do you think about it? And then when I have to set out a sentence, as you rightly say, for example, in one of the appendices, I've set out the whole of a set of sentencing remarks, one murder, one manslaughter, in one of the cases that I've described, so that you can actually see all the things that a judge has to weigh up, put into the balance in arriving at a sentence that's a just sentence for everybody involved. That The chapter with the kids is such a great way to open the book, I felt, because to sort of explain to my listeners what it is, you get the kids coming after you've finished a long day in court and they all take up roles. So some people are the, the jury, I believe, someone's the defendant, someone's the prosecutor. They all play barristers and you've got the judges in there and they have to, like you say, act out a trial basically. And then it puts them in your shoes and it gives them a better understanding of what's gone on. But even things like how you end up picking a jury and when people come up to the bench and, and try and give you 
any excuse in the world to not do jury service. What's actually the worst excuse you've ever heard from someone who wants to get out of serving on a jury? Mm, Well, I have described a few of them in the book. I've taken care, of course, not to use real names and not to describe the characters in any way that would make them able to be identified. Yeah. But I have certainly had someone say they were just too important to do jury service. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, really? Tell me about it. (laughs) How can you be too important to do jury service? And he did his jury service in the end, and he was a very good juror in the end. Yeah, that is funny. I just imagine some of the things that people must say, but like you said, you'll have to read the book to find out some more of your little uh, insights into what you've had when people have approached you. Also, you do hear the most terribly sad things from people who've been summoned for jury service, who've got a partner at home dying or you mm. know, a child with mental illness. And you hear some terrible things. So the judge, although you want you, you want your jury panel to be sworn and to sit, you do have to be sympathetic and understanding about the problems of people. Just quickly before I go on to some of my listener questions, some people have submitted some questions in for you. What do you swear on when you get sworn in, whether it's as a juror or whether it's as a witness or, you know, someone, whoever's been asked questions in the trial? If you're not religious, is there just a generic statement that you have to say? Am I right in thinking yeah, that? It's it's exactly that. If you have a holy book, then you should swear on the holy book. And if you don't, then um, you take what is called an affirmation. Right. So it's, it's exactly the same wording, except you don't say, I swear by Almighty God, or I swear by whatever would be appropriate for your religion. You say, I solemnly, sincerely, and truly declare and affirm. Right. Fair enough. Thank you. So I have five listener questions. I put up a little question box on Instagram a couple of days ago, and I got a few responses back. So happy to go through them? Yep, of course. Lovely. So the first question is from listener Roxanne Mendham, who asks, have you ever felt that someone is guilty, but the jury found them innocent? What a good question. Okay. It's not the judge's business to decide whether someone is guilty or not guilty. That is only done by the jury. I have often thought that if I were on a jury, I would not necessarily have come to the conclusion that they did. Not terribly often, but it has happened. However, I won't have heard their discussions. I won't have had the benefit of having 11 other people's views to take into account. And the reason why I think the jury system is such a good system, for all its faults, is you've got 12 people's views, 12 different views of life, 12 different sets of experiences, all working together or at least that's what should happen. And 12 people working together 
really ought to be a safer way of reaching a fair verdict than one judge. So there have been occasions when I haven't agreed with a verdict, but that does not mean that I'm right. I think that's crucial to say is that we forget that being on a jury, these invisible people that no one kind of sees, these almost anonymous individuals that have to stay off social media, not talk to the friends and family about the case and only speak with each other. I think people forget that quite often. And when you're watching something from the outside or just hearing snippets on the news and you think, oh, guilty, innocent, you don't know the ins and outs of what's gone on. Absolutely. You know, and they sit right opposite the witness box. That's how the courtroom is constructed. So they can look into the faces of the people that they are hearing the evidence from. So they're not only judging what is said, but the way that a witness gives evidence. In order to, you know, body language, all sorts of things will help a juror, as it helps all of us in our daily lives, decide whether this is someone I can trust. This is someone I think is reliable. This is someone I think has got it right and is honest, or the reverse. Yeah, good point. So my second question comes from Catrice Hackford. Catrice wants to know, What's the worst case you ever had to judge on? Now, of course, we can't go into details about potentially identifying people, but it may, maybe the worst type of case could be a better way of, of wording that. Yeah, it depends what you mean by worst. Let's go with had the biggest, because th- this combines another question from Haley Perry, who wanted to know what your most memorable cases are and, and if there's any that keep you up at night. So let's say worst in the respect of something that, you remembered for a long time that really had an effect on you detrimentally or that you you kept coming back to in a negative way, I suppose? The type of case that I never liked dealing with, and I think all judges have a type of case they find particularly difficult. For me, it was baby killings. And I remember a case, not when I was a judge, but way, way back when I was a barrister, even before I took silk, so a very, very long time ago, before most of your listeners will have been even born, I have never forgotten this case, even now. It was a mother who'd come to this country from abroad, who had no support system, who didn't speak the language, whose husband had um, provided her on a 14th floor on some tower block, and she was there with two little children and she became mentally ill and she threw them out of the window and the sight of the baby girl on a mortuary table is something I found very difficult to put out of my mind. I think that's very understandable. And then a more recent case which is also equally disturbing and does warrant mentioning was a case I did where in lockdown, a defendant, a woman defendant, had killed her child and everybody knew this woman was ill, needed help, had a diagnosable mental illness. And yet, in all the circumstances that were going on at the time, somehow she slipped through the net And the result of that was a little girl 
was killed. Um, so a child lost her life. Uh, the mother, I can tell you, will never recover from that. I'm quite convinced she will never recover from that. And of course, the father and the little boy also in the household have got to live with it too. So I think it's the cases where babies or children die and die needlessly that are the ones that really trouble me. I totally understand. I think for a lot of people, especially parents, those types of cases are incredibly hard to hear, to yeah. research, to watch. Just before we go on to the next listener question, did you notice a spike in crime with that first lockdown? Because I, I heard that domestic violence cases increased by a massive amount. Did you notice a spike in crime during that period where we were all locked in? I didn't notice a spike in the sort of crime that we normally see at the Old Bailey. So, in fact, there was a drop in the sort of crime that we normally see in the sense that street crime, street violence that ends with brawls and knives and so forth, there was less of that. But I think without any doubt, what was going on behind closed doors was worse. Stuart, can you think of anything worse than being a child or a wife in a small flat from which you are not allowed to leave with a man who is violent? And indeed, the other way around. It isn't only men who are violent. So I really can't think of anything more difficult if you were someone in that situation and you just weren't allowed out. I don't know what you were supposed to do. It's frightening to think even over the last couple of years where we are now. And even now we're kind of not back to pre-COVID times as far as restrictions. We're basically there. But to think where we were two years ago, yeah. it's, it's just a frightening thought. My next question comes from Will Venus regularly speak to Will as a good guy. As a judge, he wants to know what aspects of the job did you find most frustrating? Not much, because when you're the judge in the courtroom, frankly, you're captain of the ship. But the rules are very strict and they have to be followed. So I think Things that I found frustrating were things that were beyond my control in the widest sense. So, for example, where the law didn't really allow enough leeway in terms of sentencing for particularly serious cases of a particular nature, that was really very frustrating. But by and large, it wasn't a particularly frustrating job, not nearly as frustrating as being a barrister. That was tricky. What sort of things would crop up? As a barrister. As a barrister, yeah. <laughs> judges. <laughs> the thing that made it difficult when you were at the bar was if you had a judge that you just couldn't get to understand something. So I... I really hope, maybe this is an over-optimistic hope, but I really hope that I didn't do too much of that when I was a judge to the barristers who appeared in front of me. <laughs> so you were, you were sort of 
sick to death of dealing with judges, so you thought I may as well just <laughs> become one. Well, that's overstating it a bit, but, but <laughs> a little of that. <laughs> cool. And my final listener question comes from Maria Kelly. Now, we've kind of answered some of her questions, the first being, how are you able to take your emotions out of your job? We've kind of touched upon that with regards to derobing, yeah. uh, if, if that's the right way to say it. Sounds, yeah. sounds so weird when I say derobing. And like feeling sympathy for a defendant. But the main one I took from this question from Maria was, how do you shut off? How do you relax? Out of work, of course. Right. Good question, Maria. Firstly, can I just explain a bit about a judge's working day? Because you go into court at maybe um, 9.45 or 10 in the morning and you come out of court at maybe 4.30 in the afternoon, maybe a bit earlier. Hmm. But that isn't the working day because all the preparation for the case, all the rulings that you have to give on the legal submissions that you hear all the preparation for the summing up, and that can take, oh, you know, that can take as many hours to do as the actual court case itself. All of that has to be done outside the court day. So it, we haven't talked about it, but in fact, there are very long working hours for a judge. I'm only saying that because uh, I just want don't want to make it sound as if I really don't do much else with my life, but there wasn't <laughs> a great deal of time left. Hmm. I Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I love reading. I actually went to university originally to read English, not law. I changed to law in my last year, but I'd, I'd gone up to read English literature, and I, I've always loved reading, so I do a great deal of that. And I like walking, so I try to get out a lot and just get myself moving around. And funnily enough, although London is a big city, it's got wonderful places to walk in, lots and lots of parks. But even if you're just walking around the streets of London, they are so interesting when you really look at what's there. So that's something else that I really like doing. Nice. That's, that can't be bad. You hang up your your wig and your robe and you get out and do some walking, do some reading. It sounds lovely. And of course, now I'm retired. Now it's all behind me. I can do whatever I like. <laughs> exactly. So Wendy's first book, Unlawful Killings, which is out now, I'm going to put a link in the description of this episode. I really, really, I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, but I really recommend that people pick this up because if you're into true crime, one of the things that perhaps isn't that well documented online is the court process, especially from the point of view of a judge without that bias of being from either the defense side or the prosecution side. And the insight into how the decision's made, the sentencing, how a jury gets picked, all that kind of good stuff. I really recommend you give this a read. Any plans for, for any further writings or, or is this just it for you now? No, uh, there are some plans for another book, but they're not very far developed yet because I want to see if anyone wants to read the first one. <laughs> Makes sense. I'm sure they will. I looked on Amazon earlier. As of the time that we're speaking, it's on pre-order, but by the time this episode is released, the book will be available to buy. But it was in the top 50, top 100 of a few different categories, including law books, I think, and a couple of other different categories. So it's the pre-orders are looking pretty decent. 
yeah, it's it's um it's a huge surprise to me and a great delight. I'm glad to hear it. What was the marketing like with regards to actually putting your name on it? Did you get any any sort of aggro from your peers to say you can't say this? Because when I got sent the proof copy, the other reason I'm asking is it was it doesn't say your name on the proof copy. It just says uh, anonymous QC as opposed to your name on there. So I wondered if there was a, a reason behind that. Yeah, the reason is you got the proof copy before the 11th of March, or at least the proof copy was produced before the 11th of March 2022, which was the date I retired. Right. So okay. judges aren't allowed to have a personal profile, and I was sitting right up till that date. I didn't allow my name to be used at all because right. it wouldn't have been right. Once I'd retired, everything changed. Cool. That makes perfect sense. But yeah, like I said, I'm going to link that book in the description. Please give it a read. Where can people find you? Are you on social media, website, anything like that at the minute? I'm not, Stuart. It's a sort of hangover from being a judge where you're just not allowed to do those things. But there's lots of social media, um, Penguin social media, Penguin are publishing it. They've got lots of social media about it, bless them. So. Cool. Any final thoughts then before we close out, Wendy? Not really, just to say thank you so much for asking me. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. I think you're probably, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the most, in my opinion, the most high profile guest I've had on. I've never had a judge on the show. I've had some fantastic guests, but never anyone that's actually sat as judge on a murder trial, which is just ridiculously interesting to me. So thank you for agreeing to come on and thank you for your time this afternoon. My pleasure. To everyone else, I will see you again next week.